Hi, I'm Max Kaiser. This is the Kaiser Report. You know, inconvenient truth time. We've never been off a gold standard. People say we left the gold standard, but in fact, central banks clear all their dealings with gold. And now, after this period of experimentation with a purely fiat-run currency and currencies of the globe, various countries are recognizing that it's all nonsense. They need to go back to pure gold standardization, Stacy. Well, gold has always been there, and we have not found a way to destroy it and throw it into the sun and destroy the truth-telling that it does. For, uh, for the past 40 years, 40-plus 40 years, we've tried to remove ourselves from a gold standard, and we pretend it doesn't exist, and we pretend that we're able, through our central banks and our masters of our universe and the, the most elite and brilliant uh, Nobel Prize-winning economists like Paul Krugman, that we know better than the markets. We know better than the ordinary consumer. We know better than the ordinary investor. And that's failed because gold is always telling the truth. And, and the, 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 the reason why gold works is because it's trustless. You don't have to trust that um, uh, somebody's printing up a whole bunch of money. And this was uh, articulated this week by the Prime Minister of Malaysia. Dr. M. Moot's currency backed by gold. Prime Minister Dr. Mahathir Mohamed says Malaysia is proposing a new currency based on gold, as this would be more stable than the current currency trading, which is manipulative. He said the precious metal could be used to evaluate import and export activities among East Asian countries. Quote, we can make settlements using that new currency using gold. That currency must relate to the local currency as the exchange rate, and that is something that can be related to the performance of that country. That way we know how much we owe and how much we have to pay in the special currency of East Asia. He's saying like this is a, for the trade region of East Asia, he wants a gold-backed unit of account for trade so that we know for real what we're getting and who's cheating and who's not cheating. It's the only way you can tell if you're making any money exporting and importing is if you have a yardstick or a benchmark uh, to apply your economics. And that yardstick has always been gold. We went into a period of monetization, globalization, dollarization after World War II, where the US convinced the world that you don't need a yardstick, just take our word for it, and the pie grows infinitely. You get part of the infinite pie. And now that's failed, and countries like Malaysia, China, Russia, and others are saying, you know what? I think we'll go use gold. You know, tell us what we're making or losing in gold. And Donald Trump is really pushing this hard because he's saying that the U.S. wants to withdraw from being a globalized nation. They want to be a mercantilist nation. And so this driving this is putting it into fast overdrive now. Well, it also matches with what David Graeber has said in his book, The History of Debt, and what we do uh, during times of distrust between individuals within a society and between within nations within the global um, in the world. So right now, we have a system whereby people do not trust each other. That's why we have deglobalization. That's why the U.S. is withdrawing from a system where they feel they've been cheated, even though it's a structure they created. So you do see people not trusting each other, nations not trusting each other, and that's why you're seeing these suggestions for gold. He said 
that the global market currently is tied to the U.S. dollar, which gives room for the currency to be manipulated. Quote, just because that one country is affected, there is infection to the other countries. Malaysia was very stable way back in 1997, but because of the problems that occurred in Thailand, during the Asian financial crisis, they said, I like the IMF and World Bank sort of people, that we must peg the Malaysian currency also. What happened? The currency traders sold the Malaysian currency down and the value of the Malaysian currency depreciated. It is not even the money that they have. They never had any Malaysian currency, but nevertheless, they were able to sell huge quantities of Malaysian currency. And when it is depressed, of course, they can buy and sell it at a higher price when it comes up. The definition of naked short selling. He's pointing out very specifically that Forex traders with unlimited lines of credit at 0% borrowing costs can sell counterfeit sale orders of any currency they want to manipulate it down versus the dollar. And that's been the basis of the American empire now for decades. And these countries, it's been very difficult to extricate themselves from U.S. dollar hegemony because they had been bought the bill of goods that the world is going to grow and keep growing and you want a piece of that growth. Now it's clear that the world is reached its growth limitations, both climatologically, you can't grow the economy on a globe that's literally on fire or being flooded. Like corn, prices are skyrocketing because corn in America is being washed out due to climate change. It's a way to profit from climate change, I'll give you that. If you want to make money trading on human extinction, buy corn, right? Okay, we understand that. But getting back to the dollar, um, it's a currency that is now in a hyperinflated bubble, and once it pops, you'll see a gap in gold from 13, 1400 to 27, 28, 2900. We're going back to this notion of deglobalization. We see that in every nation around the world. We see this notion of deglobalization, except for, of course, China, which has been the big winner from globalization, and they obviously do not want to stop it. Um, every rising power always benefits from globalization and they don't want to stop it, but the empire wants to stop it. We have a, a, a global economy whereby nobody trusts each other anymore. And now we see um, that you know, this notion of fake news and this fear of fake news and this fear of the world that we ourselves have created all around us, it ultimately goes to this fake prices, this fake, because there's no measure of the economy and the fab the economy is the fabric of our society the fabric of our existence and we have no way of measuring it because there is no uh, honest unit other than gold grams or bitcoin i would say here he says in terms of remember what happened in the malaysian uh, in the asian currency crisis it was these guys these forex traders could crash their economy even though they can't print Malaysian uh, currency, that they had none themselves to sell, and yet they sold it off. He said currency trading is not something that is healthy because it is not about the economic performance of countries, but about manipulation. Anything that you have an oversupply will lose value. Anything that is short of supply will increase in value. So they sell huge quantities of money that they don't have, and because the amount is so big, there is depression of the value. Right, let's go through the looking glass once again on Forex trading and what's happened in the last 20 or 30 years. There was a time when price discovery, you know, look at the price, how did it get to the price? It was a function of buyers and sellers. More buyers, price went up. More sellers, price went down. And you looked at that price and then you would recalculate your business 
needs based on the price that was now being discovered by the marketplace. We live in a world today now where quants pick a price first and then fill in the trades to get to that price. That's a complete repudiation of free market capitalism and it's the beginning of, or it's the part of autocracy by megalomaniacs running these trading desks. And, you know, listen to an interesting podcast by Travis Kling, who was interviewed by uh, Pomp recently on his podcast, talking about what he called quant on quant crime. That when you get to a certain level in global forex, it's just extremely well capitalized quants at hedge funds abusing the system to see who can abuse the system more profitably than the other guy. And that's and the results of the prices that are then reported as economic reality, even though the f prices in this case, in almost every single instance in every market around the world now, are completely fake. But here you have genuine societies like Malaysia. It's a country filled with people and needs and wants and, and real like humans living there. If their currency is not backed by anything but what a, a computer says, an algorithm, if it's trading against the euro or the yen or the dollar, then it has real-world consequences where the people themselves are helpless. However, when they do do naked shorting of gold or silver, for example, there is an ultimate thing of delivery of physical. If you start buying, if you start taking gold off the market, if you start taking silver off the market, as when JP Morgan had a massive naked short position on silver, buy one ounce of silver at 10 bucks, and that gives them, makes it harder and harder for them to manipulate the price. So here he's saying that is like, if we have a unit of account, which is gold, then it leaves your schemes vulnerable. You can't just print up gold because we know how much there is and you have to mine it and you have to hold it and you have to verify it. So here he's saying that um, this is a way to end those schemes and asked if the Japanese yen or Chinese yuan could be used as the common currency in Asia. He replied, if we try to promote our own currency, there will be conflict. But if we have a common currency for East Asia, a common trading currency that is not used in each country, but for the purpose of settlement trade only, then there will be stability. But trying to promote the yen or the yuan, that is not way to go. Again, it's, it's called the gold standard, and yeah. that's what ran the economy most for most of recorded history. It's been run on a gold standard, and it's only because of the hokum and P.T. Barnum-esque quality of the Federal Reserve Bank in New York to convince the world that, forget gold, the dollar is going to give you a magical pudding pie. Their growth never ends, and you too can be a Hollywood star. And Okay, it worked for a while, but now it's breaking down. It's breaking down, as we've covered, you know, in Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, and Washington, D.C., where prices of property can keep on going up. That's how they keep you in, engaged in their manipulative system, is that you have the asset, which is the property, and they can make it keep on going up in price, and you feel like you're winning. But the rest of the world is looking at this. This is a moment, just like 1971, when Charles de Gaulle in France asked for their gold back, and they, they called the bluff, that the ledger they were keeping on the amount of gold in their reserves was a lie and he exposed that now they're there what uh, this guy from the prime minister of malaysia is saying is he's saying we don't even believe that they have the fake paper <laughs> like dollars to back this that well, there is no, there's no even any in paper there but again it's like mafia capitalism you know uh, currency war leads to trade war leads to hot war so the u.s has been operating like a mafia a currency mafia and now that people are demanding actually to get their cash back like the mafia the u.s will resort to violence
sales. So uh, quickly, you know, Warren Buffett has been the, the one of the chief beneficiaries of a U.S. dollar system. He has Wells Fargo. He has Coca-Cola. And he's uh, uh, very against gold and Bitcoin. So here's a tweet. Today I learned that the price of Coke remained the same. One nickel, five cents for 70 years after it was first sold. In a world where we've become accustomed to our money losing its value and being debased, how is this possible? And so they said on NPR, this is how the interview went, you might think inflation would have been a problem for Coca-Cola the whole time, but Andrew Young says there wasn't really inflation before the 1940s. Yes, prices would meander up, sometimes sugar and the ingredients cost more, but then they'd meander back down. Uh, after the 1940s, inflation is here to stay. Prices just keep going up. What happened? The U.S. went off the gold standard. Dollars no longer had to be backed by gold. So <laughs> we went off the gold standard and prices continued to climb and climb and climb and climb and climb. Yeah, you know, the uh, minimum wage, if it kept up in the same way it would have had we not gone off the gold standard in 71, mm -hmm. would be almost $50 an hour. That would be the minimum wage. Ten times higher, almost, than it is now. Anyway, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, much more coming your way. Welcome back to the Kaiser Report. It is my great pleasure to bring back once again one of the biggest minds in macroeconomics, the guy over there at goldmoney.com. His name is Alistair McLeod. Alistair, welcome back. Nice to be back, Max. Alistair, the U.S. Federal Reserve chairman this past week said that we should get rid of the word unconventional when related to monetary policy measures like quantitative easing. That is, it is now conventional policy. Your thoughts? You know, anything to print money, basically. Um, last refuge of, a, of, a, of the scoundrel um, is printing money, I think. <laughs> so, I mean, anything that supports the uh, opportunity to just try and print their way out of trouble, that's what he's doing. I mean, next we'll hear him saying MMT is a good idea. Is it not correct that when quantitative easing was introduced, People said, hey, you're monetizing debt, and debt monetization is always a recipe for hyperinflation or currency collapse. Every single country that's tried it has failed under a hyperinflationary currency collapse. And the response from central bankers was, no, that's not the case because this will only be temporary. And we, as Ben Bernanke said, we can reverse quantitative easing in 15 minutes if we wanted to. Now, here we are looking at quantitative easing for... There is no reversal. This is massive Ponzi scheme economics. And is it not simply a case of debt monetization, Alistair? It is simply that, yes. I mean, the idea that uh, you can rescue the economy by debasing or debauching the currency is absolute lunacy, because what you're doing is you're transferring wealth from people without their consent to the state. And, um, you know, this this doesn't actually improve the economic outlook. If anything, it uh, makes the outlook deteriorate. There can be a temporary benefit, and that's, of course, what they're playing on. But there's no, nothing temporary about the policy now. It is becoming permanent. It's quite simple. They are printing money. Temporary benefits are almost, by definition, a Ponzi scheme. Everyone loves it until it suddenly collapses and... Let me ask you this. We have $11 trillion in debt around the world now with at negative interest rates and that number growing. It would appear that not only are rates never, ever going up again in any meaningful way, and not only are rates going to be universally at 0%, but we will also have 
not 11 trillion in negative interest rates, but probably 80 or 90 or 100 trillion in negative interest rates, Alistair. It's going that way, isn't it? Because they just print, print, print. And part of it is to suppress the cost of borrowing. And this is actually not so much to improve uh, prospects for the private sector. It's more to make government borrowing affordable. That, I think, is the primary reason for doing QE. It's printing money basically so that governments can finance their deficits. And in the coming years, the uh, costs of welfare states will be escalating. The amount of taxes that government are collecting in real terms will be declining. So how do you bridge the gap? You print money. That's where we are. Maybe you can settle an argument I've been having with Danny Blanchflower, former, uh, I guess he was one of the uh, top guys at the Bank of England. He's an economist. I made the point a number of years ago that this type of quantitative easing doesn't fight deflation. In fact, it causes deflation. And by that, we mean the increase in zombie debt. Am I not now the winner of this debate, Alistair? Quite clearly, you are. Oh, thank you. That was a, a brilliant answer. And uh, let's move on. OK. So on that note, it looks like the Fed cuts. Yes, still. The market's at all-time highs, of course. But this is, doesn't. Let me ask you this. Donald Trump loves the fact that the markets are doing great and stock markets are going higher. If that were true, Alistair, does, isn't that when you would see rates go higher? Higher rates indicate uh, a booming economy, not rates going down. True or false, Alistair? Well, basically, the, the valuation on the stock market is, um, if you like, based on uh, ultra-low interest rates and the prospect, perhaps, as you've just mentioned, of even negative interest rates. And, uh, you know, on that basis, your valuation for anything can be sky high. Um, that's all it is. At some stage, there will be a realization in the market that the contraction of business in the real economy is actually going to be so serious that all these valuations are complete pie in the sky. And then there will be a massive return to Earth. The only exception I can think of is if governments actually step in, like the Japanese have, and buy the market, buy stocks, and end up owning a big chunk of stocks, buying anything that comes into the market. They could well do that, because there is a fear among central bankers, and this was expressed by um, Carney yesterday, uh, that uh, there's an awful lot of collateral on the bank's balance sheets, which is unmarketable. There's a lot of of collateral, which is, um, uh, or sorry, assets, unlisted assets, which are in public funds, um, you know, mutual funds, unit trusts, um, you know, um, hedge funds, and all the rest of it. And the problem is that uh, if those asset values decline, they're going to be uncovered. If the public starts selling these things, they haven't got the liquidity uh, in, in, in the fund to, to pay out. And we've got a particular case in this country, a guy called Neil Woodford, who's a hotshot fund manager, set up his own fund management business uh, a few years back, and um, uh, was very much the darling of the industry. And he's had to suspend redemptions on one of his major funds. And this is creating a huge problem. In my view, that is not the first of these instances that we will see. The global economy becomes a roach motel. Easy to go in, but you can't get out. Now, let's talk about asset values for a second and collateral and the remarks of Mark Carney. Because what we've seen over the past 30 or 40 years, 
particularly going back to the Reagan-Thatcher era of deregulation, is this constant reclassification of collateral and what constitutes good collateral. And the central banks, whether it's Basel Agreement 2 or Basel Agreement 3 or the utterances of the Bank of International Settlements, they're constantly lowering the bar, what constitutes collateral. It appears as though almost anything can be considered collateral at this moment, and there is no good collateral anywhere by the definition of even 10 years ago. And if that's true, then how do we price anything? If interest rates are zero and anything, including, you know, bat guarum, I forget what the word is for that off the top of my head, guare, I think, is considered good collateral. What kind of freaking economy is this, Alistair? I think you've got a very good point there because, I mean, the whole thing is just so, so crazy. Um, it defies analysis, really. And the central banks have now got themselves into this awful mess. Um, they've only got one weapon, and that's to print money, as I constantly <laughs> tell everybody. Um, and it just doesn't work. And the fact is that if you print money, you transfer wealth from people to the government or to the central bank or to the banks if they're creating bank credit. Um, and uh, you basically impoverish everybody, and uh, then you've got no economy. That is the end point, if you like, to which we are moving. Well, it's basically trench warfare. You know, you have all these central banks are dug in, and instead of firing bullets all day long for no reason, they just print money. And the result will be the same, a global catastrophe. It, reparations will follow. One, one country, you know, China, will demand reparations from the U.S., the U.S. will become enraged, and they'll probably, you know, as a lot of people have said, currency wars lead to trade wars, lead to hot wars. So once this blows up and China demands reparations and the U.S. gets the short end of the stick of the new banking Versailles agreement, we're going to have, you know, this is how you, this is how you get uh, fascism. This is how you get political extremism, uh, Alistair, your thoughts? No, that's absolutely right. Um, uh, America does have a huge problem, and that is that she has been financing herself uh, by, if you like, running a, a trade deficit uh, and uh, uh, re-importing the dollars which uh, have been sold to foreigners in order to finance the government. Foreigners buy U.S. Treasuries. That story is now coming to an end. Now, the problem for the American government is they cannot afford that story to come to an end. And I think this is why they are gunning for China so hard. What they want to do is make China uninvestable for international portfolio money. So guess what? The money will go into the U.S. dollar. That is the hope. It's almost as if they're saying, we don't care about the rest of the world. It can go to hell as far as we're concerned. But America will be all right as long as we get the portfolio flows. Now, I think it's too simplistic an analysis, if you like, from the American end, if that is what they're saying. But that's certainly the impression I get from their actions. Okay, the story with China and the U.S. is that they have a reciprocal arrangement. China has a lot of uh, U.S. dollars on the balance sheet. The keep their currency low, to export their way into a massive GDP boost, and that they would not rationally dump dollars. But if we're going to a hot war, a trade war slash hot war, and you enter into the fog of war, uh, China could irrationally dump a trillion or two trillion dollars worth of U.S. securities and crash the dollar. And they could also, according to Chris Cook, who's a respected uh, energy analyst, 
they are now the swing vote in the oil market, and they have the ability to crash oil, which, of course, would put every single American fracker out of business, and America would once again be entirely dependent on foreign energy sources. I mean, that's where things can go when you have this type of environment where, as you point out, every single problem is met with only one response, money printing, Alistair. On the Chinese, I think I would caution um, and say that they are very unlikely to trigger um, uh, a, a nasty uh, uh, economic situation. I think what they're more likely to do is just to sort of respond in kind to uh, what the Americans do. So um, you're not going to get an aggressive China, I believe, unless they actually really do get cornered by um, uh, the neocons in America. In that, in that situation, they may have no alternative but to walk away from the dollar completely, as you rather suggest. I don't think they would necessarily just go and dump dollars, but I think what they would probably do is they would probably drive up the gold price. That would be a far uh, more subtle and logical thing to do. And if the gold price went up to over $2,000, $2,500, I think that it would impact on the dollar very negatively um, because the dollar is the other side of that trade. And not only that, but I think that people wouldn't blame the Chinese for driving the uh, price of gold up. I mean, they would just say, well, you know, uh, you've got the Chinese, you've got the Russians, you've got the Turks, you've got the Indians, you've got all these people who go in and buy gold. And guess what? Um, America's monetary policy has driven them to do it in even greater quantities than the available supply. So um, I don't really think that China needs to do anything direct like dumping treasuries. I think that would be too overt. It would be too aggressive. And it would lose China the global support upon which she relies outside America. All right. Fair enough, Alistair. Uh, thanks again for being on the Kaiser Report. That's my pleasure. And that's going to do it for this edition of the Kaiser Report with me, Max Kaiser, and Stacey Herbert. I want to thank our guest, Alistair McLeod of goldmoney.com. If you want to catch us on Twitter, it's Kaiser Report. Until next time, bye, y'all.